Father, we thank you so much for today. We pray that you would reign not just in terms of an invisible kingdom and a future real kingdom, but Lord, in our hearts today, reign. May you be commander and chief over our hearts. May we listen to you today as though our life depend, depended on it, because it really does. So Lord, teach us your truths from your word, delivered to us through your chosen people about your Son, Jesus Christ. Speak to us through your Spirit. May your Spirit come and change us, mold us and make us new people, cause us, cause in our hearts a desire to obey and the power to do that. And Lord, we pray this especially for those who don't know you. We pray that you would cause in their hearts a desire to understand the truth of Christ and then to obey the command that Jesus gives everyone everywhere we just read about to repent and have faith in him. Help us in this, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Well, I have to say it is an immense blessing to be back with you. I can't tell you how much I miss being here, singing with you, fellowshipping with you, and then standing here in this pulpit. This is the longest I've ever been away from a teaching opportunity my entire ministry, 20-something years, and uh, it's a profound honor that I have to stand before you and uh, teach the Word of God. I'm so glad to be back, and I'm so glad to be back at my favorite time of the year, Christmas. If Christmas is not your favorite time of the year, repent. (laughs) For Christians, Christmas is not just about baby Jesus or about good old Santa Claus or about getting junk that we will throw away one day. Christmas is about the whole life and work and person of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you, if you read the gospel accounts of the coming of Christ, there's only a couple that give us a little bit of narrative, one being Matthew, the other being Luke. But even in those narratives, we have really the whole scope of Jesus' life and work. Luke, for instance, in chapter 2, the most famous narrative of Jesus' birth, Luke tells us in chapter 2, they wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him. 21 chapters later, he says there was no tomb for him, and so they wrapped him in linen cloths and placed him where no one had been laid, a borrowed tomb. You see, Luke's presentation of the advent of Christ, the arrival of Christ, forecasts the coming atonement. John's gospel takes it a step further. He doesn't even give us really a story of the birth of Christ. He goes straight to the idea that Jesus Christ, in Christ, is the arrival of God Himself, the Word, the revelation of God in person here on earth. God the Son arrives to be the light and life of the world. The world rejects rejects Him, which is tragic, but they cannot overcome Him. This Savior, Jesus Christ, John says in the very first few sentences, dwelt among man and revealed His divine glory to them. Matthew, which it's been a couple, two and a half years since we've started the book of Matthew, tells us over and over in those early chapters that all that was happening was the fulfillment of these grand and ancient promises of God throughout history. God was keeping those promises. Another thing that Matthew does in his presentation of Jesus' advent is to give us the story of the Magi. Sometimes we call them the wise men. And the point is to invigorate in our hearts the right response, the right answer 
to the arrival, the advent of Jesus Christ. God had, God had revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. Now how should we respond? And that's what I want to focus our attention on during this Advent season, the story of the Magi. So open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at that at, over the next few weeks, studying chapter 2 of Matthew. And again, the question is, what is your answer to the Advent, your answer to the Advent, your response to the revelation of God? What we have in Matthew chapter 2 are some poor responses to the arrival of Jesus, followed by the right response of the Magi, whom we will all seek to emulate in this Christmas season. Let me read to you the entire chapter. Just follow along as I read aloud. I think it's important just to get the whole scope. And today is actually going to be an introduction to the next three Sundays as we lead up to Christmas. So uh, as someone told me earlier, my sermon has no points, therefore it is pointless. But I hope you can find the truth here, being what is our response to the Advent. Let me read to you this entire chapter. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw what he had, that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So when Herod died, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. When he heard that 
Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, and he would be called a Nazarene. This is the Word of God. Perhaps the saddest Christmas song, maybe even the saddest song that's still sung today, is likely written in the 1300s. We know it as the Coventry Carol. You may not recognize the title, but you know it if you heard the very ominous tune that it has. Kind of some strange harmonies there, interesting tempo changes, and they have it ends with what's called a Picardy Third. I'm not going to sing it for you, so don't get too excited. Just look it up. You'll recognize it. We're not really sure of the history of the song. I read somewhere where they said that it was written after many children had died there in the 1300s in a small village. Many children died, and they wrote this song in reflection of what had happened in the time of Jesus. By the 1500s, it became a part of traditional Christmas cantatas where people would sing and do plays during the Advent season. Let me read some of the lyrics again. You may not recognize the lyrics, but if you look it up, you'll recognize the tune. And of course, it's based on Matthew chapter 2. Here's one of the verses. Herod the king, in his raging, charged he hath this day his men of might in his own sight, all young children to slay. And woe is me, poor child, for thee, and ever mourn and may for thy parting neither say nor sing Bye-bye, Loli, Lole. Why in the world would Christians hang on to this song? I think part of it has to do with the fact that we live in sort of a sheltered world here in America in the 21st century. We sort of put the dark things in hospitals and asylums and away from us, and we don't see the dark side of the world. And Many people throughout history, and many people even living today in different cultures do see dark things, and they hang on to dark songs more readily than we do. But I think there's something more to us hanging on, that, hanging on to that song, we Christians, is because it represents to us the fulfillment, the truth of Scripture surrounding Jesus' birth. In a bigger way, it represents, it teaches us of the hateful response of the world to Christ. People seem to be okay with Jesus as long as he stays in a, in a corner, as long as he demands nothing of you, as long as you just acknowledge him as some sort of nice little story from long ago. But as soon as they hear the words of Jesus, the command to repent, the command to believe in him, to follow him, people get very angry about the revelation and the advent of Jesus. And this is what we see even in the story here. That's what we have in this story. Matthew picks up after all these revelations. We had seen the, in chapter 1, here's this, this lineage that's given to prove to us that Jesus came of the right lineage. He is of the kingly lineage. He's the lineage. He's the son of David to fulfill all those prophecies. The end of chapter 1, he's born to this man Joseph who is righteous, and Mary, we know, is righteous as well. Not perfect, but definitely good people being used by God in this way. Mary miraculously conceives and then gives birth, all amidst this miraculous revelation of God speaking, breaking the silence after 400 years 
And he's done it all to reveal himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, there's more miraculous revelation. Verse 2 of chapter 2, there's this astronomical, visible revelation marking Jesus' arrival and more, more precisely where the Magi were to travel. In addition to that, here in chapter 2, we have more dreams, more revelation of God, God's Word, the truth of God being revealed to mankind so that we can identify the Savior and worship Him. Now, really, this is what I want to do today is just to ponder and think about our own response. God controls the universe. God controls history. God acts supernaturally, intervenes even in, in miraculous ways to call us to worship Jesus Christ. That's what's happening, I believe, with the star. This is a miraculous intervention to lead us to Jesus Christ. And I think this is Matthew's objective here. The first few chapters, and we cover this again two and a half years ago, the first few chapters of his gospel, he's repeating this Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the promised one. In fact, let's just go down memory lane. Back when we began the book of Matthew, I was preaching sort of verse by verse, walking through there, and then I paused for a few weeks, if you can remember that far back, and I paused, and we spent a couple Sundays, I did a single sermon over two Sundays, talking about all these fulfillments, and we went at, uh, looked at those first few chapters, first four chapters really, and looked at each passage that's mentioned as being fulfilled in Christ. Now let's go back. If you want to go back and listen to that two-part sermon, I think I called it Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, appropriately. We just sang that song. But let's just remind ourselves of all these prophecies, all these truths that God had spoken in ancient times that were revealed to be indeed true and fulfilled in Christ. Chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, you can flip there. First promise fulfilled, that promise is from Isaiah 7, and it regards the miraculous virgin birth. All this took place, verse 22 of chapter 1, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, quote, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What's the revelation? The revelation is that the Messiah will be miraculously conceived by a virgin. Now, it's interesting, the Bible doesn't get all detailed about the genetics. Now, people get kind of confused and think, well, maybe he was half DNA, was Mary's and the Holy Spirit. No, the Bible doesn't give any of that. If you try to do that, you'll get very confused very quickly. This was a miracle. It's not explained physically. It's a miracle. God himself was conceived in the womb of Mary. That is not physically possible. That is a supernatural thing, and it happened, and it was predicted by the prophet Micah, Micah chapter 5. This is pre predicted by, uh, excuse me, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9. The next one is a few verses later. The next prophecy fulfilled is in chapter 2. We just read it a moment ago. Herod goes to the scribes and Pharisees and said, where, where is this baby supposed to be? Everyone knew about the Messiah. The scribes especially knew the Messiah was to come, and they knew what the Bible had said. This is the one that's from Micah. They knew what Micah had said about the birth and the location of the birth of the Messiah. They told him, verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So again, we have revelation. This is God the man coming in form, fulfilling the promises, and he's 
coming like this shepherd David. He is coming in the, king, in the kingly role of David, but also the shepherd role of David, and he would shepherd the people of Israel. And this would be pictured by him being born in Bethlehem. So, revelation and response. We worship him as our great shepherd king. We worship him as God incarnate. We worship him as shepherd king. Down in verse 14, we read it a moment ago, and next prophecy fulfilled, talking about Joseph, the father of Jesus. He rose, took the child, his mother by night, departed to Egypt, remained there until the death of Herod. This is to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. This is from Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. What's the revelation? God has revealed himself to mankind that the Messiah, foreshadowed by the people of Israel, will emerge from Egypt alive. Just like the people of Egypt went away to, uh, people of Israel went away to Egypt and, so to speak, died never to come, never to be alive again. No, God preserved them and brought them out of Egypt. That was a picture of what the Son of God would do. And sure enough, Jesus is following this pattern just as it was predicted by Moses and Hosea. So we worship Him. We respond to that revelation by worshiping Christ as the chosen Son of the Sovereign God. The very next verse introduces to us another prophecy, verse 16. Herod saw that he'd been tricked, and so he had ascertained that it had been about two years since the child was born. Verse 17, then we'll, and so he killed all the babies two years and under, that's verse 16, verse 17, that one was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And we'll get to that a little more. But this is showing us the tragedy of the world within which the Messiah would come and redeem this broken world. So, we, again, we have revelation. The Messiah is coming. He has come to initiate the new covenant against the backdrop of this broken world. He will redeem this world, and we should worship Him, the Messiah, as the Redeemer of a broken world. That's our response to that revelation. That's our answer. Down in verse 22, this is from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 53. They go to Nazareth, where they were originally from. They go back there. Verse 23, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And this all deals with him being born in a humble place to humble people, a place that's despised like Nazareth. He's a humble Savior, and we should respond to that by worshiping as a humble Savior. Very next chapter, chapter 3, John the Baptist came preaching, wilderness of Judea. Repent, he, he preaches. This is to fulfill what was spoken, verse 3, by the prophet Isaiah, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Again, the revelation here is that this prophet had spoken that the Messiah would come, he'd fulfill, he'd be the climax of all the prophecies from the Old Testament. The final and greatest prophet would even prepare his way, and the Messiah would come. And so we worship him as the consummation of all the old covenant. The final prophecy before Jesus begins his ministry, it's after the temptation of Christ, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as I said. Look there in chapter 4, verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun 
so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, on them a great light has dawned. Again, we have revelation. This is the Messiah who is to come and to redeem not just Israel and Jewish people, This is the world's Savior. He would go to a worldly place. He would go to a place of many cultures. And Capernaum was that place where he would launch his ministry as a fulfillment, but also to represent that he is Savior of all people. We worship him in that way. Now, I say all that to say this, or remind you of all that to say this. Matthew's purpose in the first few chapters is to open our eyes to who Jesus really is and call us to worship Him, to answer the advent in that way. I will worship Jesus Christ as a Savior in all these different ways in which He was predicted. God has broken His silence. The Messiah has come. Now we are to worship Him. So let's set up the scene. That's, the, that's sort of the theme of Matthew's first few chapters. Let's set up the scene, and uh, then that's probably enough for today, and we'll uh, look at that, look at the rest of this next week and begin looking at the responses. Well, it all begins by these wise men, these magi following a star. These would have been astronomers, sometimes even astrologers from the east. Somehow, God had broken through their own hearts and called them to worship the Savior. They began to follow this star. Well, again, we'll talk about it a little more as we, especially as we get to the end of this section and talk about the Magi themselves. But they began following the star. Verse 2 here of Matthew 2, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So these fellows are stargazers, are looking for signs in the sky. Perhaps, again, they may be pagans and astrologers at this point. Wouldn't be pagans for very long. But at this point, they're looking at the stars, they're interpreting the stars, and they see this star And somehow, and it was obviously the revelation of God, they are called to follow this star. Second part of verse 9, skip down to verse 9. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, what is this star? We know it appears. They were from the east, probably toward India, maybe Persia or Pakistan, that area. They start traveling toward that star, and again, we'll learn this later on about these magi. They would have had had a huge entourage of people with them. That's why when they showed up in Jerusalem, it troubled all of Jerusalem. These were important figures in history. These were important uh, astrologers that came from the east. They would have been doing some bidding of some king's. This have been frightful, I think, for Herod and others. And they began heading west following this star. What is this star? Well, we don't really know. There's all kinds of explanations. I've come across at least four different explanations as to what this star was. Some people say it's a, it's a comet. They try to align it with history of certain comets going and flying by the earth at that point. Other people say, no, it was a star that was sort of uh, uh, going out, dimming and dying, and it had this big uh, explosion, nucleon explosion. Other people say, no, it's a conjunction of planets. Again, they have to adjust the dates to make things work. Other people say, no, it's simply the Shekinah glory of God. Frankly, I don't think 
It matters what it was. It matters that it was. Remember, God dominates creation to call people to worship His Son. I don't think it, it was a natural thing because it not only guides them to the east, I think you could say, well, maybe there's a star they looked at and it could guide them to the east, but this actually goes over a certain house. Some of you have a little nativity scene and it has a, a star sitting above the actual nativity scene. Well, we know the wise men probably didn't go to the nativity scene. It was two years after, but you get the picture. They, it actually lit on the house where Mary and Joseph had begun to live there in Bethlehem. So no star, no planet, no conjunction of planets or comet could lead someone to a specific house. So I think it probably was something miraculous, something amazing, perhaps something even only the Magi saw. It was something shocking, something beautiful, something that called them to go and find this king and worship him. I want to show you something. I like to point this out every Christmas season. In Luke chapter 2, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, very familiar passage, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David. I mentioned it earlier, Micah said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now we have a problem because Mary and Joseph are from Nazareth. They're living in Nazareth. So how was God going to orchestrate getting them to Bethlehem? Well, years before Jesus was even born, God moved in the heart of a pagan king. He moved in the heart of Caesar Augustus. Maybe he allowed some desire for him to go to war, or perhaps a desire for him to get money through taxes... And it took years, and we know this just by looking at the way the Roman uh, Empire recorded its taxes, it would take years for, this, for the bureaucracy to kick in. It would take time from the order to happen. They didn't have the Internet back then. They couldn't just say, time to tax everybody. It would take years for that command to filter down all through the bureaucracies of that day and get all the way to the people of Israel for them to tax people like Israelites would tax people by family lineage. God orchestrated all that to get Joseph 90 miles to the south to Bethlehem. This is God's massive, amazing providence. Unlike the star, this probably was not miraculous in terms of uh, uh, supernatural. God just moved in the heart of a, of a king and through providence, through circumstances, through even men's wills and desires and history, God moved in all of that to accomplish what He desired. It says in Proverbs that God moves the hearts of kings like, he can move, like moving water through a river. He can change even hearts of kings. Later on in Luke, we have this Shekinah glory blazing in the sky for these shepherds to see. And again, this would have not been providence, but a miraculous revelation of God calling these shepherds to go and worship. And so you have two ways. I want you to get this in your mind. You have two ways in which God shows Himself and God works in this world. Here, God is working providentially with Caesar, and God is working miraculously with these shepherds. 
He moved the heart of a king, and he revealed an angelic host, normally invisible to a human eye. He moved the heavens, the earth, he worked supernaturally, he worked through providence, he did all of that to call people to worship Jesus. And I just want to pause here and point this out. God, are, God interacts with this universe in these ways, these two basic ways, sometimes blending these two things together. But these two ways, one is miraculously, God has the authority and the power to work over nature or supernaturally, miraculously. And God did this in the arrival of Jesus. He, he spoke through angels and dreams. He spoke through the Shekinah glory. He used this uh, method of revelation to give truth to people. Yeah, most Christians agree that this is true, that God can work miraculously. In fact, this is probably the most well-known way. And when we talk about God moving or God doing something, usually we're thinking in terms of miraculously or amazingly or supernaturally, I do think we often neglect the other way in which God works, and that is providentially. God is not confined to only working through miracles. God works through everything. He mostly works inside of nature, through history, through governments, through minds of pagan kings. He works through the wills and decisions of man. He works through all kinds of things to bring about His purpose. In fact, theologians agree that since God is God, all that happens in history is indeed God's providence. Now, sometimes it is sad, it's dark, it's terrible and tragic. The Puritans would call that the frowning providence of God. Sometimes it's good circumstances and happy things. That's the smiling providence of God. All things work together for those who are called and love God. All things are part of His plan, even the bad stuff. Everything that happens is under the careful control and providence of God. And the reason I bring this up at this point is that we often get a little bit insecure thinking that maybe we need a miracle to prove somehow we're connected to God or God's in our life or whatever. And so sometimes we find things that aren't really miracles, and we say, it's a miracle. I took Advil and my headache went away. It's a miracle. The chemo worked on the cancer. It's a miracle. Well, that's not really miracles. That's providence. And you can still worship God. I, I like the attitude. You want to worship God. But we can thank God for providence as well. In fact, we can think about all the exigencies and the changes and people's decisions and all that and be amazed, I think, sometimes more at the providence of God than we can the miracles of God. God working all these things, magnificently planning out His sovereign plan. And we need to be joyful and thankful for God's providence. God used His providence. God used the miraculous. Like God used both things in the advent of Christ to reveal to us the Savior, Jesus Christ, who would be born in Bethlehem. We see this at His birth, providence and miracles. We see this in Matthew 2 here, providence and miracles. And I think this is truly awesome in the real sense of the word awesome. God moving the whole universe, Caesar, angels, wise men, a star, Herod, manipulates it all to call us to worship Jesus Christ. Now, maybe not as auspiciously or maybe not supernaturally, maybe not as cosmically. If you're a Christian, you look back and you see your 
walk, and even you coming to Christ, and you realize God did it all. God did everything. He put me in a family, whether a believing family or an unbelieving family. God put me in this situation. He let me know this person. He opened my eyes to the gospel. God worked miraculously, but God also worked providentially to bring me to His Son, Jesus Christ. Those of you who are not believers, maybe you're like the Magi and you see this star on the horizon and you're starting to follow and think and God is beginning to, make, beginning to make Himself known to you. Maybe even today you're starting to realize Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. This is not just some fairy tale that Christians gather and sing some songs about and move on with life. This is our life. This is our Savior. And maybe God is beginning to call you. Maybe even you being here watching Maybe God is calling you to worship His Son. Now, this is the right response to the revelation of Jesus. Worship Him. And we're going to see this later on as we look in a little deeper way to these people, the Magi. Now, this is really the introductory idea. Here in our story, the advent of Jesus, the revelation of the Messiah comes to man. The Christ has arrived, the Savior of the world, the Anointed One. All these prophecies are being fulfilled there's miraculous signs, but there's also amazing providence working in concert to identify the Savior, Jesus Christ. How would people respond? John said that Jesus came to His own, and His own received Him not. But all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave them the right to be called the children of God. And that's my desire for all of us as we come to the Advent season. And in spite of the world's reaction to Jesus, whether it be in hatred, like Herod, or with indifference, like the scribes and Pharisees of the day, and in spite of what's around us, we will respond to the Messiah with worship and adoration. We'll come to Him seeking for Him to be our personal Savior and Lord. We would believe what He actually did on the cross, that it actually did pay for our sins, that He actually rose from the grave as victor over sin and death. And by believing and trusting in Him, you can have eternal life. For those of us who are believers, we are called once again to orientate our lives around who we call our Savior. Christmas is a time when we we reorient her. I love that Christmas, that we celebrate Christmas, and it just historically happened this way. Jesus wasn't born in, 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 on December 25th. It's probably April something. But I love that we celebrate it right here, right before the beginning of the year. It's almost like God has given us a, a new start each year to reorient our, our lives around our Savior, to worship Him, to think about all that He's done, and to focus our attention on worshiping Him, whether it be at our work or our families, with our money that we would take time to do that. Let these truths, let the worship of Christ define who you are, just as, as it did these magi. So let's pray as we look at this over the next coming weeks that God will convict us and convince us to worship Jesus Christ even more today. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this wonderful season, the season of thanksgiving, the season of gratitude for you for sending your Son to this earth. We celebrate Christ, our Savior. We thank you for him. We pray, Lord, we would not take another Christmas for granted, focusing on all these earthly things. We focus on the heavenly things, the, the truths that should define us. First and foremost, the truth 
of Christ, his person, his work, his rule. May this define who we are this Christmas, this Christmas season. Oh Lord, I know that we take part in the busyness of the season and we purchase gifts and go to the parties and do all those things, but Lord, may this be a time, most importantly, where we orient our lives around Jesus Christ. Again, we pray for those who have not made that decision to follow Christ yet. We pray that this would be a banner day for them, that this season they would actually see Jesus for who He really is and follow Him. We need your strength to do this, so we ask for it in His name. Amen.